Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, False Justifications for War, Russian and Ukrainian History, Part 1. The date, February 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. I'm going to now give you three quotes from Frederick the Great, King of Prussia in the mid-18th century. Number one. Diplomacy without military might is like music without instruments. Two, don't forget your great guns, which are the most respectable arguments of the rights of kings. And three, I begin by taking. I shall find scholars later to demonstrate my perfect right. This podcast is the first of three involving Russian and Ukrainian history, The first will discuss justifications for war and their falsities. Second, we are going to look at Imperial Russia. And third, the Soviet period. But first, false justifications for war. Frederick the Great, the mid-18th century king of Prussia, is a unique historical figure. He was one of the great generals of history, but also believed in the Enlightenment, hosting Voltaire himself at his table. In addition to the real politic statements above, Frederick also said, quote, The greatest and noblest pleasure we have in this world is to discover new truths, and the next is to shake off old prejudices. Unquote. That's actually a phrase applicable for today. Frederick forged the modern Prussian state, the precursor to the Germany of two world wars fame. At one point, he faced a coalition of France, Austria, Sweden, and Russia when each nation was more powerful than his own. The timely death of one of his adversaries, Elizabeth, the Tsarina of Russia, enabled him to eventually emerge victorious in the Seven Years' War. It also helped that Elizabeth's heir, a feckless Peter III, held Frederick in the highest of esteem and immediately ended aggressions towards Prussia. Alas, this was not enough for Peter to keep his throne as his German-born wife, named Catherine, ousted him from power. We shall see more of Catherine in the next podcast, but suffice it to say that in the past two years, not one, but two streaming services have featured shows about her. The first on HBO was a a real look featuring Catherine at the height of her power. The second one is really more of a comedy, it's called The Great, that chooses saucier bits of history and throws them together without any real pretense to accuracy. Frederick was different for yet another reason. When he conquered the rich province of Silesia, wresting it from the Austrians, his justifications were, well, in my opinion, paper thin. I will repeat the quote from above because it is germane to what we are seeing in the news today, circa February 2022. Again, quote, I begin by taking. I shall find scholars later to demonstrate my perfect right, unquote. Regarding the taking of Silesia in 1740, Frederick's timing was not coincidental. These takings rarely are. The Habsburg Austrians also Holy Roman Emperors, were trying to accomplish something generally frowned upon in almost every other nation, particularly in the 18th century of Central Europe. And that would be to install a woman, Maria Theresa, as Empress. Frederick, or his scholars, came up with this semi-justification. 
Brandenburg, Prussia's claims in Silesia were based in part on a 1537 inheritance treaty between the Silesian Piast Duke Frederick II of Lignica and the Hohenzollern prince-elector Joachim II Hector of Brandenburg. The goal of this treaty was that the Silesian duchies, the goal of the treaty was that the Silesian duchies were to pass to the Hohenzollerns, which is uh, Frederick's family name, of Brandenburg should the Piast dynasty in Silesia become extinct which it did. But basically, this had already been a possession of Austria long before this time. And keep in mind that this treaty was over 200 years old. In other words, Frederick's whole claim was primarily specious. So did you did you get all that? The, the Pias Dukes and all this kind of stuff? I mean, what was Frederick's real justifications? Well, really, there was three of them. First, Frederick, like Alexander of Macedon, had inherited a very well-trained, very well-equipped army from his father. And like the Macedonian, he was not afraid to use it and had the capability to use it. Two, Frederick saw in Austria's female succession an opportune moment for the seizure of Silesia, calling it, quote, the signal for the complete transformation of the old political system, unquote. And finally, number three, Silesia was rich. The Roman Empire was one of the largest, longest-lasting states in history, but the Romans had a strange conceit. They believed that the majority of their empire had come by way of defense, or so that was how they justified their happening-upon empire. They did not conquer Italy, but in turn they had to protect themselves from tribes in Campania, Greek city-states in the south and Celts in the north. They did not conquer Spain, North Africa, or southern France. Instead, they had to crush Carthage, the owner of those provinces, before Carthage conquered them. In Macedonia, when they eventually conquered Macedonian Greece, it was Philip V, king of Macedon, who started it, and the same of the Seleucids in Asia. And of course, if Cleopatra VII had behaved and not meddled in Roman affairs, or with Roman generals, Octavian would not have added that nation into the Roman fold. That is why Caesar's Gallic conquests were were somewhat problematic. When he began the conquest of Gaul, there was no direct threat to Rome, aside from the migration of the Helvetii. Caesar used this migration and general fear of the Germans as his casus belli. That is one of those Latin terms I love so well, casus belli, or argument for war. Caesar cemented his actions by issuing his famous Gallic commentaries and, of course, by winning. The commentaries are fascinating to me. It is as if all American news reports from Asia in World War II were not from news agencies, but rather directly from Dwight Eisenhower's own pen. Imagine how setbacks such as the hedgerow fighting in and around Normandy or the surprise German offensive known as the Battle of the Bulge would have been spun. But Eisenhower like Caesar, won. All through history, we see these sorts of justifications, these casus belli. Edward I of England had to war on the Scots because they kept raiding Northumbria. His grandson, Edward III, had to wage war on France because his own grandfather, through his mother, was king of France. So he had a legitimate claim to the throne, or so he claimed. And the entire British monarchy itself was based on William of Normandy's rather spurious claim to the English crown itself. 
The United States had to conquer Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California because Mexican president and strongman Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana was a threat. Forget that the concept of manifest destiny was a thing. And this brings us to Vladimir Putin's justifications for his war on Ukraine. And let us be clear, to all of those who thought that this was some sort of a surprise, my God, he actually did it. Seriously? Let's begin with another war that involved Putin, the Chechen War, the second Chechen War of the early 2000s. In September of 1999, a series of explosions blamed on Chechen separatists at the time hit four apartment blocks in the Russian cities of Banyask, Moscow, and Volgodonsk, killing more than 300 and injuring more than 1,000 and spreading a wave of fear across Russia. The bombings, together with the invasion of Dagestan, triggered the Second Chechen War. Then Prime Minister, not President yet, Vladimir Putin's handling of the crisis boosted his popularity significantly and helped him to attain the presidency within a few months. Twenty years later, there is actually no clear answer to who planned the terrorist attacks. Even the official version, the official version, offers no proof that the Chechen leaders were actually behind it. Now, was Putin directly linked to these bombings? The answer is unknown, but we do know a couple of things. Number one, obviously, Putin hugely benefited from this national crisis. As journalist David Satter, who has reported on this incident extensively, notes, quote, There was an enormous amount of material in the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta that pointed to the possibility and the likelihood that the authorities themselves blew up those buildings. At the same time, a fifth bomb was discovered in the basement of an apartment building in Ryazan, a city southeast of Moscow. And as I went to Ryazan after the bomb was found and diffused to talk to residents, it was clear from those conversations that what took place was a genuine attempt to blow up a fifth building. The authorities said this was only a training exercise, but it was nothing of the kind, unquote. And what was most important was is that three persons were arrested for putting a bomb in a building in Ryazan. They turned out to not be Chechens, not terrorists in the usual sense, but rather agents of a service called the Federal Security Service, or the FSB. And here's the million-dollar question. Who was in charge of the FSB at the time? And by the way, the FSB was the former KGB. The answer is Vladimir Putin. So, we have evidence of a bomb that did not go off in the city. There is evidence that, there would, that this bomb was somehow involved was diffused by the FSB, and Putin is in charge of the FSB, and finally, there is no, not even in the official record, any kind of linkage directly to Chechen leaders at the time, and yet these bombings were used as the reason to begin the second Chechen war, and it was that war and the entire national crisis overall that propelled Vladimir Putin into the presidency. Now, That was one war. Let's look at another. 
In the 10th century CE, Georgia, located in the Caucasus region between the Black and Caspian Seas, for the first time emerged as an ethnic concept in the territories where the Georgian language where the Georgian language was used to perform Christian rituals. Now, after the Mongol invasions of the region, and we'll see a little bit more about those in the next podcast, the kingdom of Georgia eventually was split into several different states. But in the 19th century, the 1800s, the Russian Empire gradually took over the Georgian lands. After the Russian Revolution, Georgia declared independence on 26 May 1918, but two years later, but three years later in 1921, the independent Democratic Republic of Georgia was invaded by the Red Army in that year, and a Soviet government was installed. Now, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Georgia again declared independence. Inside the borders of traditional Georgia lay a province called South Ossetia, whose inhabitants, a tiny minority population, wish independence from Georgia. And it was this, the ostensible protection of the South Ossetians, that actually provided Vladimir Putin with another casus belli. In 2008, Russia accused Georgia of aggression against South Ossetia and launched a full-scale land, air, and sea invasion of Georgia on 8th of August. Russia called this a peace enforcement operation. Russian and South Ossetian forces fought Georgian forces in and around South Ossetia for several days until Georgian forces retreated. Russian and other forces opened a second front by attacking the Kodori Gorge held by Georgia. Russian naval forces blockaded part of the Georgian coast and the Russian Air Force attacked targets beyond the conflict zone in undisputed territories of Georgia. In other words, it wasn't about South Ossetia. They attacked the entire nation. This was the first war in history in which cyber warfare, something of which we have seen a lot and we're going to see more and more and more of, coincided with military action. Now, an information war was also waged during and after the conflict. Eventually, Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France at the time, negotiated a ceasefire agreement on 12th of August. But as of this writing, South Ossetia still remains part of Vladimir Putin's reign, not that of Georgia. During this time, Russian forces temporarily occupied three Georgian cities, holding on to those areas beyond the ceasefire. And in addition, the South Ossetians destroyed most ethnic Georgian villages in South Ossetia and were responsible for the ethnic cleansing of Georgians in that area. And it is here we come to one of the great falsities of understanding about what is happening to Ukraine today, and that is the specter of NATO. In the 2000s, Georgia had aspired to be a member of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that was designed initially to counter Soviet predations in Europe. Many, too many people, ranging from the late George Kennan to the sometimes insightful and profound and poignant Peggy Noonan to the increasingly unserious Tucker Carlson, have praised Putin's concerns about NATO as the reason for his invasion of his neighbors. But here's the thing. The corollary to this argument is, is that if NATO had not expanded, 
had not added Poland or the Czech Republic or Lithuania to NATO, Putin would not be the belligerent creature we see before us now? Is that really logical? That this man, who probably, more than likely, there is a lot of evidence too, blew up his own people as justifications of war and to put himself in power, would be somehow deterred by lack of NATO? What is it that it really is about Vladimir Putin? What is he really about? There is a phrase initially attributed to Roman Emperor Tiberius. I've used this one a lot in this podcast, but it just makes so much sense. And Tiberius said that to be emperor is to hold the wolf by the ears. If you hold the ears, you can control the wolf. But if you let go, you will be destroyed. In Putin's reign, when he began to jail or even to kill his opponents, when he began to use state entities such as Gazprom, the national oil company, to further his political interests, and when he began to war on his neighbors, there was no going back. There is no retirement in store for men such as Vladimir Putin. Even previous Russian leaders, such as Mikhail Gorbachev, Boris Yeltsin, were able to retire, to turn over the reins of power to somebody else. It is something American presidents do routinely. Even as I say these words, Barack Obama lives in absolute luxury in a $15 million mansion on Martha's Vineyards. George W. Bush is considered now an elder statesman and and is prized for his immigration artwork. Jimmy Carter still writes books. Bill Clinton is still around. American presidents can retire. And in the case of Boris Yeltsin, that was an example of a Russian who was able to retire. But Putin cannot. He has done way too much damage. If Putin ever lays down power, he will be set upon by so many opponents, not the least of which are disaffected mobs of his own Russian people. So what is a dictator to do? Essentially the same thing Western politicians do as well. Find a straw man, a common enemy, the other, to justify the hold on power and to justify the deterioration of livelihood that has taken place under Putin's reign. In Putin's case, he has found NATO. Though it had been considered, there was no such current plan to include Ukraine in the alliance, but that does not matter. And to use NATO in this fashion is backwards. This is the logic of the left that says that since Americans enjoy relative peace, we do not need a significant military presence. But the reason we have peace is is that we have a significant military presence. NATO is not the reason that Putin invades his neighbors. Instead, it is the reason that he has chosen to take on non-NATO members, such as Georgia and Ukraine, and not go after even easier prey than Lithuania. Lithuania is tiny compared to Ukraine, but it would still serve his purposes. He could still invade and say, I'm liberating the 20% of Russian people who now live in Lithuania. I'm liberating them. I'm bringing them back into the fold. And after all, Lithuania was part of the Soviet empire. So I'm bringing that back into the fold too. So why isn't he doing that? Because Lithuania is a part of NATO. Why is he invading Ukraine? Because it is not. But why is he invading these countries anyway? It is because he needs to keep the focus off of his own misgovernment. 
And frankly, it is disheartening in the extreme to see ostensibly intelligent and informed writers such as Noonan, Carlson, and even writers in The Federalist aping Putin's propaganda. And as for Donald Trump's descriptor of Putin as a genius, forget the inanity of his publicly providing praise and admiration for such a figure. Instead, Trump's abilities to voice his thoughts that freedom of expression brings to mind Mike Tyson's purchase of a jaguar and three Bengal tigers. Just because you can does not mean you should. Per the genius comment, that is the kind of ignorance I would attach to progressives. It is not genius to line up forces and launch them at much smaller, peaceful nations. Instead, that is historically the regular part of the thing. I started off by throwing up, what, four or five rulers? I went from Frederick to Caesar to the Edwards. It's always been done. That's not genius. Frederick was not a genius for invading Silesia, nor was he a good man for it. However, he was a genius, at least a military one, for fighting off four nations, each of which was able to field larger armies than his own in the Seven Years' War. Putin, on the other hand, he likes to pick on the weaker ones. And let's be clear, this is not the invasion of Ukraine, but rather a continuation of the war in Ukraine, as Russia already sees the Crimea in 2014. We have discussed Putin's use of NATO to justify his ends. Putin has also made it plain that he does not consider Ukraine a real country. In July, an extended essay titled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians appeared, well, at least under his name. He probably didn't actually write it. Much of the language and scholastic discourse echo, in cartoonish form, the writings of 19th century Russian nationalists such as Mikhail Katkov. Isaac Chotner, writing for the New Yorker, states, quote, Vladimir Putin has made clear that he believes Ukraine has no historical claim to independent statehood. On Monday, he said that modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia. Putin's statements bristle with frustration with American and European leaders for what he perceives as bringing Ukraine into the Western orbit after the end of the Cold War. But at the heart of his anger is a rejection of the political project embodied in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. For years, Putin has questioned the legitimacy of former Soviet republics, claiming that Lenin had planted a time bomb by allowing them self-determination in the early years of the USSR. Yet in his speeches, he appears to be attempting to turn back the clock, not to the heyday of Soviet communism, but the, the time of imperial Russia, unquote. Does this sound like a person who believes that he would leave his neighbors alone if NATO did not exist? So let's ask the question, is Ukraine an independent entity? Chotner adds, quote, I recently spoke by phone with Sergei Ploke, a professor of Ukrainian and Eastern European history at Harvard and author of The Gates of Europe, an account of the emergence of Ukrainian identity. His forthcoming book is Adams and Ashes, A Global History of Nuclear Disasters. That sounds like a real page turner. During our conversation, which has been edited for length and clarity, we discussed the long-standing sources of Russian fears about the Ukrainian language and identity, how Ukrainians might respond to further Russian incursions, and Putin's speech tells us about the complex relationship between the two nations. 
Shochadner asks the professor, how far back do you trace a type of Ukrainian identity that we would recognize today? And the professor responds, it depends on what element of that identity you are speaking of. If you are talking about language, that would be pretty much primordial. That would be more than a thousand years old in terms of identity and religious components. But the first modern Ukrainian political project started in the mid-19th century, as with many other groups. But Ukraine's problem was that it was divided between two great powers, the Russian Empire and Austria-Hungary. And very early, the Russian Empire recognized the threat posed by a separate and particularly literary Ukrainian language to the unity of the Tsarist Empire. So starting in the 1860s, more than 40 years of prohibition on the publication of Ukrainian basically arrested the development of that literary language. Everything had to be in Russian. That, along with the position between the two powers, was a contributing factor to the fact that, in the middle of World War I and the 1917 revolution, with other nationalities trying and in some cases gaining independence, Ukrainians tried to do that, but were ultimately defeated. We shall look into that defeat in a future podcast in which we will examine the Soviet response to an independent Ukraine. But suffice it to say that, you know, all the glory that's attributed to the czars and, you know, there's even this this musical Anastasia in which she remembers so fondly uh, her father, Nicholas II. Now, do I think that the Imperial Romanov family in 1970 should have been gunned down and slaughtered by the Bolsheviks as they were, especially the children? God, no, of course not. But do I believe that the Tsarist was this great sort of golden age of Russian history? No. And their treatment of the Ukraine under Tsarist management is an example of that. Now, there are three especially prominent cities in Russian history. First, obviously, is Moscow, the center of the Tsarist and, for the most part, communist regimes. Not always the center of the Tsarist regime, but definitely a prominent city and the beginning of the Romanovs. The second would be St. Petersburg, the city founded by the most famous of the Tsars, Peter the Great, the capital of the empire during World War I when it was called Petrograd, and the site of a famous World War II battle, though at that point the city was known in its Leningrad iteration. But before those cities were even founded, there was Kiev, or Kiev, as it is known today. The organizing center of Kievan Rus, the first great Slavic state began in the mid-9th century as a commercial hub on the trade routes connecting Europe, the Eastern Christian Empire, or the Byzantines, with its capital of Constantinople, and the Abbasid Muslim Empire ruled from Baghdad, and even a third one, the Khazar state of the Lower Volga and the Northern Caucasus. Supposedly, and I kind of like this, the city was founded by a group of siblings, but one of those siblings, Key, ended up becoming the precursor for the name. So the founding brother, Key, managed to get Kiev as the capital city. But this could be as problematic as Rome, having been founded by a twin named Romulus. I always wonder if Romulus and Remus, why it wasn't Remus who roved, and we'd be talking about the Reman Empire, but, but I digress. At its zenith in the 11th century, Kiev was the ruling center of one of the largest political entities in medieval Europe 
and one of the world's most splendid cities at the time. Its population for the year has been estimated at 50,000 or more. By comparison, contemporary Paris had about 50,000 inhabitants, while London had less than 30,000. The rulers of this entity were known as the Grand Princes, and one of them, Vladimir the Great, and again, here's where we come to this difference within these Slavic dialects. Vladimir the Great is a Russian name, but Volodymyr is the Ukrainian pronunciation. And Volodymyr ruled Kievan Rus from 980 CE on, and he was more intent on addressing the needs of his subjects and establishing a cohesive state. Having married into the royal family of the Christian Byzantine Empire, Volodymyr converted to Christianity and converted his subjects, baptizing en masse a large number of Kiev's inhabitants. The history of Kiev after Vladimir probably reached its height at that point. Unfortunately, the richness and fame of Kiev attracted many plunders and it sustained numerous attacks and ruins. It also didn't help that one of the things, and we've seen this with a lot of royal families, one of the various princes, Kiev was assigned to the oldest son who got to be Grand Prince, but the younger sons decided not so much. Incessant, internecine battles for the throne of Kiev ensued, and the city sacked by one of these guys, Prince Andrei of Suzdal in 1169, and by Prince Rurik and his allies in 1203 were particularly destructive. But whatever power and life remained in Kiev from that medieval times, underwent what happened to so many states at this time, the Mongol invasions. As a result of these unceasing wars and plunderings, Kiev's importance began to dwindle. But in December 1240, it was sacked by the Mongol Tatar army of Batu Khan, which decimated its population. Now in our next podcast, we will explore the Polish-Lithuanian conquest, the Cossacks' arrival, and the Tsarist Russians' incursion upon Kiev. But suffice it to say that despite Kiev's relationships to Russia in recent years, its medieval history and all of that area now known as the Ukraine was far more tied to the likes of the Byzantines and the Arabs to the south, the Mongols from the east, and the Poles and Lithuanians to the west and north. And this history also shows that a once great and proud city was brought to near ruins by avaricious powers in the past. The same thing that is happening today. However, what has changed was that the Mongols nor the Poles possessed nuclear weapons. Therefore, it is not just Putin's aggressions that will make him stand out on the world stage today, but that he possesses these weapons, which will give the world pause in confronting his barbarities. Was it John Smiley who first described the Soviets as, quote, upper Volta with missiles, unquote? in the 1960s as a joke of the disproportional spending on the military while leaving the civilian economy underdeveloped? It does not matter if Russia has a smaller GDP than France, Italy, or California. It does matter that we now have a nuclear power waging war on a large scale. And the reason Putin does so is that, as like Frederick, he will take what he wants, regardless of those opinions around him. But unlike Frederick, he does not feel even as a choice, not because of NATO or because of a lack of pure Ukrainian history, but because he needs a distraction from his misgovernment and corruption. And there is another aspect to this, and that is the concept of timing. 
I had used other examples throughout history. Caesar's timing, well, it coincided with when he was consul and then afterwards proconsul. Proconsuls in Republican Rome were sent off to their provinces. So that was his opportunity for military glory. And the Helvetii provided that. I had also mentioned about Frederick. Timing was the essence of of that as well. When the Holy Roman Empire was trying to install a woman into place as the empress that he decided to strike, when the Austrian succession was in doubt, Frederick saw his moment. So why now? Well, a couple of reasons. First off, oil. Oil is always going to be at the center of Putin's decision-making processes. And part of it was, is, is that oil, because of the, of the COVID pandemic, and because of decisions made throughout the world, including things like Germany abandoning their nuclear program, more reliant on oil, and even the United States, once oil independent, but decisions made by this current administration to stop pipelines and to no longer permit drilling on publicly owned lands, and slowing down of permits for the Gulf of Mexico. All of this means the pandemic combined with these policies means higher oil prices and higher oil prices for an oil-rich country like Russia gives him leverage. When oil was completely cheap, down to what, $2, $2.50 a gallon? Not coincidentally, under the Trump administration, Putin did not strike, but he has in 2014, and he has today. Timing is also part of his plan. He is leading Russia to ruin, and as long as he remains in power, it does not matter. That is the true justification for what he does. This is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening to this latest conservative historian podcast, and check out all of our other podcasts on our Buzzsprout uh, feed. Thanks for listening.